While they head out, we are uh, turning to a new book of the Bible. We're going to 1 Timothy. So you'll want to turn there. We start this new series, Timothy Discipleship in Action. Appreciate all the prayers uh, for everyone. And uh, negligent, I was supposed to announce that Jim and Laura Washburn uh, met with the elders and were received into membership uh, this week. So... Another, I think that's a rejoice with those who rejoice and not a weep, so we'll we'll go with that. Uh, (laughs) So glad to have you. uh, So that's great. If you would turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. So if you're looking for it, it's near the uh, back of the New Testament. If you get to Hebrews, go left. If you get to Thessalonians, go right. You'll find it sandwiched in there. And, uh, and that would be great. So, the, um, let us turn to it now. This is a, a whole new series, and there's lots to say here. 1 Timothy chapter 1, we're going to read the whole chapter. So listen carefully as this is God's word. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promotes speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Excuse me, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, 
the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting these, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You have brought us to Paul's first letter to Timothy this morning to learn more about the gospel, about faith, about the dangers of disbelief, the need to keep faith in Christ the main thing in each of our lives. And Lord, this is hard. Sometimes we don't know how to do that. Sometimes we don't know how we're going to keep doing that. And so, Lord, once again, teach us what to do, teach us what to say, teach us what to believe, teach us how to live. Build our faith, draw us near, and help us learn from you this morning. And so we pray, speak through these words of the Apostle Paul this morning, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. You'll have to bear with me a little bit. I lost my voice yesterday. Um, So I'm hoping I'll be okay. Well, it's Labor Day weekend. And when I was growing up, Labor Day was the last holiday of summer. It was that melancholy day that signaled the end of summer vacation and the start of a new school year. When I was growing up, school didn't start until the day after Labor Day. I know it starts earlier than that here, and even earlier the more south you go. Um, But obviously I didn't grow up in the south, so it started after Labor Day. And with the long sunny days that once stretched endlessly before me finally gone, the arrival of Labor Day meant that my freedom and idleness had come to an end. And that was an unwelcome reminder As uncomfortable as the stiff new jeans my mother bought for me during our annual back-to-school pilgrimage to the Sears Roebuck catalog. Some of you don't know what that is, but we didn't have Amazon then. We had the Sears Roebuck catalog, and I would get to go pick out a couple of shirts and a couple of jeans, and that's what I wore for school. Even now, when Labor Day arrives, the smell of the grill is mixed with a tinge of sadness. After all these years, I hate to watch summer lessen its grip and give way to the cooler and busy days of the fall. Soon the days will grow darker earlier, and the air will will turn chillier, and it will unfailingly remind us that Psalm 144, man is like a breath, his days are like a passing shadow. The fading days of summer remind me of my own swift passage through the years. You may not be aware of this, but I'm getting older. Apparently, there's nothing I can do about it. Television commercials give the impression that the only difference between being a young adult and an old adult is stylish gray hair. They imply I can still function like a 25-year-old with a little help from certain medications, minor cosmetic surgery, and a good financial planner. 
They exploit the aches and pains taking place in my life and in my body and have the audacity to suggest these changes can be reversed if I only purchase their products. Life tells me differently. My strength wanes as I grow older. My capacity for work is diminishing. Friends are passing away. And age is a chill wind that signifies not only the end of the summer, but the end of all things. The days seem to go by faster as I get older. I find myself regretting that I've been in such a hurry to meet them. I read that Albert Einstein once said, uh, I never think of the future, it comes soon enough. I regret the same can't be said about me. I think about the future constantly. Most of my youth uh, was spent in school preparing for the future. As a pastor, much of my energy is devoted to planning for the church's future. And as a professor at RTS, I spend my time training the next generation of church leaders. The future is never very far from my view. And so I wonder if this is a little bit of what the Apostle Paul felt like. His days are numbered. It's time to pass the baton to his protege, Timothy. And so he has written Timothy two letters. And they're really passing the baton letters. So again, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. It's again near the end of the Old Testament between Thessalonians and Hebrews. And this is the first of three letters often referred to as the pastoral epistles. Now I have a quick outline for it. Can we uh, show that outline? So here's the pastoral epistles according to Ken Colley. Huh? Grace, I thank God for you. Hold fast to the gospel. For the love of everything holy, stop being stupid. Timothy says hi. There you go. You've got it, right? That work? Okay, George is saying yeah. That actually sounds like Ken. So, but yeah, you can take that down now. Paul's pastoral epistles, which just mean pastoral letters, they're written to individuals, but they're meant for and read to congregations. And they're not simply meant for the original individual and the original congregation to whom they're written, but they're also meant for us. Because, as the Apostle Paul tells us, all Scripture is given by inspiration and is profitable for reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. So Paul is not simply sharing his opinions uh, in these letters. He's telling us God's word for the church today. And so we'll be looking at what these letters teach us about life in the church. Pastoral epistles give us both a description and a prescription for life in the church. They give us a description of what uh, it would have been like to have been in the local church in the days of Paul. If you've ever wondered what it would be like to be part of a congregation pastored by Paul or pastored by a pastor who'd been sent by Paul, uh, we'll get a good description of what that would have been like here in the books of First and Second Timothy. But you get more than a description, because Paul's not just giving us interesting information. He's instructing us in how it's supposed to be. And his focus, as you might expect from an apostle, will be on the primacy of the gospel. He wants us to understand that it is of first importance. And that's the good news of God's grace as it's found in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God and Savior of sinners. 
And so he starts with the source of the gospel. If you have the outline, again, you can always get that uh, from our website. Source would be your first blank there in that outline. Verses 1 and 2, source of the gospel. See, Paul was not self-appointed. He wasn't even commissioned uh, by the church. He has been chosen, called, and commissioned directly by Jesus Christ. His apostleship came, verse 1, we read, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So from the very start, it's evident that this letter is full of profound teaching about the attributes and activities of God. It starts with God our Savior. This phrase is looking back to the salvation that God accomplished through Christ. And Christ Jesus, our hope, phrase looking forward to the day when Christ will return in power and glory. So Paul's opening lines mention virtually everything God has done and will do to save his people. Paul has made it clear to Timothy and to us, the source of the gospel is none other than God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. And his greeting is full of profound theology, even though it's very short and brief. He offers Timothy, verse 2, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. He starts with a traditional Greek uh, greeting of grace. He ends with the traditional Jewish greeting of peace, and he inserts mercy to make it a distinctively Christian blessing. From the very beginning, this epistle is full of Christ. It's full of the hope that Christ will return in glory, the grace that Christ offers to sinners, the mercy that Christ gives to the needy, and the peace that Christ has made with God through his death on the cross. This letter brings grace, mercy, and peace from Christ to Timothy, Paul's spiritual son. And we see that Timothy is a true son in the faith in several ways. little history, Paul first met him when he passed through Lystra on his second missionary journey, he had heard of his excellent reputation, and he invited Timothy to join him to come alongside him in Acts chapter 16. Timothy began his ministry under the apostles' mentorship, and over time they developed a close relationship. They traveled together to Thessalonica, see that in 1 Thessalonians 3, to Corinth, 1 Corinthians 4, and to Jerusalem, Acts 20. Timothy stayed by Paul's side when he was imprisoned in Rome, Philippians 2. They also collaborated to write six books of the New Testament. The letters of 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and Philemon come from Paul and Timothy, even though Paul is the primary writer. After all they've been through, it's not surprising that Paul considered Timothy his spiritual son. He shows him the same fatherly affection when he wrote to the Corinthians. There he called them, 1 Corinthians 4.17, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. Later when he was in prison, he wrote Philippians 2, I have no one like him. You know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with the father he has served with me in the gospel. And so there is close relationship here. But now we get to the purpose of the letter. Because something that Paul has warned 
the Ephesian church about, he warned the Ephesian elders about, has now come to pass. And for that, we need to go back to Acts chapter 20. So there we read, Paul's giving his sort of farewell words to the elders uh, in Ephesus. And he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Well, that has now happened. The false teachers have taken root in Ephesus. And Paul's response to this crisis of false teaching in the church comes in the form of this mild-mannered young pastor named Timothy. And so first he tells Timothy he must guard the gospel, verses 3 through 11, to guard the gospel. Paul's purpose here is to help his spiritual son remain true to the gospel. In the opening verses of the letter, he exhorts him to hold on to the true faith, verse 2, to defend the true doctrine, verses 3 and 4, to cherish a true love, verse 5, and to uphold the true use of the law, verses 6 to 11. If he is a true son going to become a true uh, minister, he has to teach true doctrine. And so this is what Paul starts with in his letter, starting at verse 3. As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. That's how we know that that's the church that Timothy's at. So that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations, rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So the question that immediately comes to mind, who are these false teachers? Who were the false teachers of the Ephesian church? Paul doesn't name names. He ominously referred to them as certain persons. No doubt Timothy knew exactly whom he was talking about. You can even imagine as this letter was being read in the churches, there's sort of sidelong glances that are cast at these men by the other people in the church. What are these men teaching that's so wrong? Paul says they're obsessed with myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations. They started with the Bible and sort of made up the rest as they went along. Their teaching is little more than guesswork. You could call it the product of a lively imagination. And then, as now, such speculative theories are likely to excite the interest of weak or unsound hearers. So this false teaching, it could include any extra-biblical texts. 
And maybe you're not reading the Gospel of Thomas or something like that, but maybe you're reading some popular book that's influenced how you're thinking about the Gospel rather than getting that from the Scriptures. Uh, anytime you or anyone thinks there's any sort of secret knowledge given to a select few. Timothy's time, we called it Gnosticism. But Gnosticism is alive and well. There's a lot of people think, oh, well, we know stuff today that, you know, they didn't know before us. That ought to be a red flag for you when somebody comes up and says, we have learned something new that no Christians have ever known before. That flags ought to be going off when you hear that kind of stuff. And, of course, there's people out there that are saying that. And so there's even a bunch of uh, end-time speculation. Anytime there's any major crisis, particularly in the Middle East, which regularly has major crisis, somebody's like, this is it. And there's going to be another book about the end times, the 19th edition, because it's the 19th crisis. Um, you know... Sooner or later, they're going to be right. It may be the 197th edition uh, by the time we get there. But um, we don't know. The Bible's very clear. We're not given the date. We're not told. Um, so all that stuff goes on sort of within the church. Uh, the other reason not to teach uh, false doctrine is essentially it's a waste of time. Verse 6, he says, Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered into vain discussion. He says much the same thing in the second letter. In 2 Timothy 2, he says, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And just like today, once vital members of the church have lost their theological bearings, they have drifted away, which is the way most people abandon the faith one step at a time. The more they deviate, the more doubtful their doctrine becomes. And the main place one finds such meaningless talk today is on social media, where people often engage in wearisome and unproductive debates about all sorts of secondary doctrines and useless battles over who's right on an issue that no one cares about. Yes, every now and then the arguments can be on an important topic. And Paul is going to tell Timothy there are some times when he needs to fight the good fight. But it has to be something worth fighting for. And Paul wants us and Timothy to know that the gospel is worth fighting for. A lot of other things aren't, but the gospel is. Salvation in Christ is the most important thing that God has planned or accomplished for his people. Therefore, it's the important message for us to study and to teach and to live. And nothing should distract us from the message of the gospel, least of all some speculation that goes beyond Scripture. This is a warning not to major in the minors. Those who tend to be dogmatic must be absolutely sure they have the right doctrine. Paul tells us these false teachers in Ephesus, they don't lack conviction. He says their teaching is full of what he calls confident assertions. However, they speak, verse 7, without understanding what they are saying. Not a week goes by that I can't read something online from someone who was once a good teacher that I'm like, that is not what that text is saying. They have gotten that wrong. 
And oftentimes they get it wrong to justify themselves. So it's not always inadvertent. Um, it's a dangerous combination of arrogance and ignorance at work. It was in Paul's time and it is in our time. Error can be taught with as much conviction as the truth. In fact, the more argumentative someone is about an issue, the more likely they are to be imbalanced uh, about that. It's been argued that the gospel makes the law obsolete. And it's true that the gospel does away with the law as a basis for justification, as a basis for our salvation. So the difference between the law and the gospel is the law is powerless to save. Paul tells us that, Galatians 2, by works of the law no one will be justified. Only the gospel, in which the righteousness of Christ is offered to us by faith, is able to save us. And yet the gospel doesn't lower God's standards. The law remains useful for convicting us of sin and driving us to Christ, for restraining sin and its effects on the world, and teaching us, teaching believers how to live for Christ. If you've ever heard the phrase, the three uses of the law, well, there they are. Paul's emphasis on sound doctrine is a valuable corrective for these pluralistic times. Because you will hear people say and write something along the line of, your theology is just your opinion. Christianity may be true for you, but not for me. You have your truth, and I have my truth. Now, biblically, truth is not subjective. It is not culturally conditioned. You don't get to pick and choose whatever truth you find most convenient. Sooner or later, you have to face what Francis Schaeffer called true truth, that truth that's been revealed by God and does not change with the times. And this is why Paul uh, warned this same Ephesian church in Ephesians 4, to no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. And when you do that, and when you focus on that, on growing up into Christ, then you can celebrate the gospel. Starting at verse 12, Paul is turning from the false teachers and their misuse of the law. And so now he, he writes a little bit about himself and the gospel that's been entrusted to him. And he retells the story of his conversion and commissioning very quickly, sandwiching it between two verses of praise, starting at, at verse uh, 12. It says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. So that's the praise. And then he goes to his story, he says, Formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. The grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. This is the chief of sinners passage. He says, but I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, as the chief of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So Paul mentions blessings. I thank him who has given me strength. 
striking. He's referring to the inner strength that Christ has given him even before he specifies the ministry for which he needs to be strengthened. Second, he thanks Christ because he's judged me faithful. This doesn't mean that he trusted Paul because he perceived him to be inherently trustworthy, but because he gave him the grace and mercy that made him faithful. And then third, he thanks Christ for appointing me to his service, referring to his commissioning as an apostle. So Paul gives further substance to his thanksgiving by reminding Timothy what he had been, how he had received mercy, and how God had mercy on him. And then he he uses three words to describe what he used to be like. He says, formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. Perhaps the apostle intends to portray this sort of ascending scale of evil, from words of blasphemy through deeds of persecution to thoughts of insolence, which not a common word we use, means deep-seated hostility. Paul says when he opposed the gospel, he acted ignorantly in unbelief. Humanly speaking, there is no hope for someone as malicious and aggressive as Paul was, someone who hated believers as much as Paul did. There's Pauls out there today. There's people who are blasphemers and persecutors and insolent opponents that have deep-seated hostility to the church, to Christians, to the gospel, to Christ himself. But Paul was not beyond the mercy of God. Verse 15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Nine words in English. It's breathtaking in terms of how much is stated, how much is packed into so few words. You could say we have a complete explanation of Christmas from the Old Testament promise of the Messiah to the incarnation and his purchase of salvation in nine words. Looking at this from a few different angles, Paul starts by saying this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Our acceptance of the gospel is not only wise, but deserved. Half-hearted acknowledgement, mere intellectual assent, a passing nod of your cap, none of that fits. And so it's so true and so important, it deserves a wholehearted embrace. If you respond half-heartedly, then you still don't get it. This is stunning news. It's the kind of news that's so humbling and so shocking and makes you want to put your hand over your mouth because it is so stunningly good. Second, this shows us what Jesus came to do. He came to save sinners. That's what his name means. Matthew one twenty one. you will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. You need to look long and hard at the word sinners here. Don't miss what it's saying. Christianity is the only religion on the planet for bad people. All the others tell you you have to be good in order to be saved. And they tell you all the good things you have to do to become good. And Paul doesn't say that Jesus came into the world to save those who earned it, or those who have it all together, or those whose good deeds outweigh their bad deeds. Christianity is not about what you do to reach God. It's about what God has done to reach you. I mean, seriously, do you think that you could earn your way to Jesus? 
You think you can clean up your life enough, become so presentable that Jesus just has to take you in? Christianity is for sinners. Paul knew that. He clearly saw it in himself. He knew that if you had to earn it, he was at the back of the line. Why save someone at the back of the line? To show that anyone in line can be saved. If last place isn't too far away to be saved, then no one's too far away either. What's on display here, Paul says, is Jesus' perfect patience. He always stands ready to receive repentant people. His arms are always wide open no matter what you've done. You can't do enough to cause Jesus to shut his arms to you. You are always savable. The faith and love of Jesus more than overflowed for the worst sinner, which means they're sufficient for you as well. But it has to become personal. It's not enough to say that he came to save sinners in general. Faith looks at the cross and says, he died for my sins. My sins are paid for. I belong to him now. He offers grace that exceeds our sin and exceeds our guilt. It's a grace that can't be contained or exhausted. It triumphs over sin. It triumphs over your sin. It triumphs over my sin. And it comes to those who receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel. The second membership question to join this church. And if that's you, then these words are equally true. John 8. So Jesus said to the Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. A lot of people in the world today assume eternal life until they see that they don't deserve it. When you see the horror you deserve, and then you discover the treasure you get, Then you want to sing, now under the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. 1 Timothy 1.17. This is such a great salvation because 1 Thessalonians 1.5, our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Therefore, you, Timothy, and you, believer, must be willing to fight for the gospel. You must be willing to fight for the gospel. He says, verse 18, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Holding faith in a good conscience, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan. They may learn not to blaspheme. This charge I entrust to you. There are some ruling elders here. This church is blessed with good ruling elders. There are some deacons here. This church is blessed with a number of good deacons as well. And Well, for the elders and deacons, this text is telling you to remember what the church said to you. At some point in your life, you came up here. You knelt down uh, here. You were prayed over. You were set apart. You were given the task to lead and to serve. There were solemn words repeated over your head. You were commissioned, you were given a charge. That's what Paul is saying to Timothy. Remember that. Don't forget that. When you're tempted to give up, when the struggle feels like it's too much, when the caring 
quotient seems to have been expended, don't forget the words that were spoken to you at that moment. The next thing Paul says, verse 19, holding faith and a good conscience. Now, Paul could mean, Timothy, I want you to hold on to the true true doctrine we call the faith. Hold on to the gospel. Hold on to the fundamental beliefs of the church. Or maybe he's saying, Timothy, I want you to keep on believing. I want you to keep on trusting. I want you to keep on persevering in the faith. One is objective. One is subjective. One is a faith that's out there. One is a faith that's in here. So which is right? In the Greek, it could be both, so I'm going with both. I think that's the right answer. Hold on to the faith. Don't ever think for one minute that the faith is secure here at Potomac Hills. No matter what, not because of the caliber of our session, because caliber of the pastors, past or present, the doctrines of the gospel are safe. Don't ever think that the truth, the faith, the fundamentals of sound doctrine will never waver or falter. We have got to intentionally maintain the faith. We have got to intentionally hold on to the truth. You know how long it takes for a church to lose the truth, to part company with the gospel? One generation. That's all. Take just one generation. It would take the nomination and election of a group of elders who are not committed to the truth. And in one generation, you will see a departure from the gospel. It would take calling the wrong kind of teaching elder to the pulpit of this church, and it will fall away in one generation. You have to realize the biggest job this church has in the next 10 years is that you will have to replace me. And if you screw it up, it will take you years to recover, if at all. And if it happened in Paul's time, it can happen in ours. Look at what he says. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, who I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. One of the hard things I hear from time to time is zealous students of mine who graduate from seminary, and then two, three, four years down the road, they have a catastrophic fall. Some have a moral lapse, and they're out of ministry. Even in some cases, their profession of faith is called into question. It's fashionable now for people to deconstruct. And Paul gives an example here. Two men, Hymenaeus and Alexander. And he says they've made a shipwreck of their faith. If you remember from our series last January, Coming Home, Bringing Back the Wanderer, I told you by my count, Potomac Hills has seen 85 people. Total count people come through this church. We have about 200 now. But if you go back 25 years, 660 people have come here. And that's just members because I didn't keep track of all the attenders. But of those 660 people, 85 people, 34 adults, 51 children, mostly teens, have wandered away. Doesn't mean they're not coming back, but they've wandered away. Almost all the adults left the church before the faith. Most of the teens wandered off during the college years. Those numbers should break your heart. Don't ever think it can't happen here. If the numbers hold, that means seven people here this morning will wander away from the truth over the course of the next five years. They may be sitting near you this morning. Maybe a family member. Maybe you. And if you're in that position this morning, I want you to know that when God looks out at the church at the world, he sees 
two types of people. Before God, there's only saints and sinners, those who are in Christ and those who are not. And that means something very significant for you this morning. It means that when God looks at you, he sees you in Christ, a saint, made holy, freed by Christ from the power of sin. Or it means that when God looks at you, he sees you without Christ in rebellion against God, a slave struggling under the bondage of sin. Those are the options. The freedom of being a saint in Christ or the bondage of being a slave to sin. You may have spent years in church, faithful attender. Perhaps this church stuff is new to you. You've gotten interested recently. It doesn't matter. When it comes down to whether or not you're in Christ or without Christ, It comes down to whether or not you believe in the name of Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners and whether or not you've received him as your Lord and Savior. If you have, amen, you're a saint. You're in Christ. If you haven't, then stop. Take the time to open the Bible. If you don't have one, let me know. I'll get you one. Open a Bible. Read for yourself what Jesus did and what Jesus said. Examine for yourself the claims of Christ and what the Bible teaches about what it means to be in Christ. We can have the wrong perceptions about God, but we can also have the wrong perceptions of ourselves. A lot of people do. Some people look at their lives and they feel like they're doing just fine. Thank you very much. They have confidence in their own righteousness and feel like they're okay because they have a long list of good deeds. Others look at their lives and see their own sinfulness, and that's all they can see. Sin after sin, week after week, year after year. Are we sinful? Yes. But God knows that, and he still accepts us in Christ. He won't accept my sin, but then again, he doesn't have to because he's already paid for it in Christ. I do the grace of God a disservice when I let my own perception of myself overcome the fact that I am his adopted child by grace through faith in Christ. God didn't have to save us. He didn't have to accept us, but he did. He did adopt us, he did choose us, he did save us, he does accept us, all because he loves us. The gospel says you're a sinner and Jesus Christ died for your sins. The world doesn't believe that. The gospel says even when you are faithless, the faithful God has forgiven your past, laid claim on your life, and secured your future. The world doesn't believe that. The gospel says though you were dead in your trespasses and sin, Christ died for you, rose from the dead in victory over your sins, gives purpose to your life now, and is coming again to claim you for all eternity. The world doesn't believe that, but you do. And when you trust in Christ for salvation as he is revealed in the gospel, then you are in Christ. All these blessings are you. You are chosen, adopted, redeemed, and forgiven. And he invites you to come to his table and have fellowship with him. Let's prepare for that by thanking him for what he has done for us. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you've spoken to us by your Son. Teach us the surpassing value of being in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let us rejoice in the knowledge that we have been chosen and adopted by the Father, redeemed and forgiven by the Son, and sealed by the Spirit. Let us now come to the Lord's table to be with the one who died for us and covered our sins with his blood. 
Grant that knowing all this may result in changed lives. In the name of your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen and amen.